0: Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Steve Fowler, lead pastor, as he begins. In our Jesus series, we've been looking at, um, at Jesus through the eyes of some of his first followers. Uh, looking through the, the eyes of guys like John the Baptist or a tax collector named Matthew. Uh, last week, we, we looked through the eyes of uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who we sort of imagined in our, own, uh, uh, in our own mind about a guy who, if we had the, gave him the chance to say, well, what's the picture of Jesus that you would offer us? Uh, he, he, would, he would say, he's the Jesus who taught me that I can't climb my way into the kingdom. I can't behave my way into the kingdom. I, you're born into it. And this week, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the, the disciple, the apostle John, and looking at three little vignettes of his life found in Luke chapter 9. And uh, you may want to grab your Bibles and turn there. I'll read that in a second. Uh, but let me just, as you're finding your way there, just make the observation. We, we know that we, we do life in some pretty strange ways. Uh, not just here in America. We, we have our own strangeness and weirdness and all that, our customs. Uh, but around the world, there's some pretty uh, odd customs from our perspective. Uh, take, for example, one in Scotland. Uh, if, if you're a bride-to-be... Uh, you're engaged to be married soon. Uh, this one would be interesting to you, perhaps. Uh, in Scotland, not, not at all weddings, but in some weddings, there's this tradition that after you say the vows, uh, after the ring is put on your finger, after you're announced as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and you go to the reception, and the reception is sort of winding down, there's this tradition in a Scottish wedding where the, the, the people who are there celebrating with you take their, their cup of tea and they throw it on the bride's dress. Uh, and then they take a custard, that's typically at the reception, and they throw custard at the bride. Uh, they sort of cover her, her hair, her, her dress with custard. Uh, they have eggs that they sort of smash on her. And then she's paraded around the pubs in town. Uh, and it uh, doesn't sound like really honoring to the bride, but apparently it's what you do. Uh, they probably look at us and think, "What's well, weird you put cake in the bride's face, but, you know, over there, they, they throw tea on the bride. And, you know, maybe you're going to a wedding in the next week or the next month or so. Imagine, imagine being at the reception. Everyone's gathered around the bridal party's at the table up front, the reception. You walk up with your cup of coffee, your cup of punch, and you throw it on the bride. <laughs> What's going to happen? the groom and the groomsmen are probably going to run you down and, uh, and bring you some harm, right? Uh, why? Because that's not how we do it here. Uh, we, we smash cake into each other's faces. Uh, we, don't, we don't throw tea or custard at the bride. That's just not how we do it here. Or maybe you're expecting a, a child soon. You're, you're, you're soon to give birth to a baby. And uh, consider this this custom uh, from Kenya, it's the Maasai tribe. When a woman is about to give birth, uh, she, she gets in this birthing hut. D- don't think, uh, you know, Salem Hospital or some really nice hospital with a birthing room or birthing suite. Think sticks and grass and dirt and, uh, and this mom who's going to give birth. She's in, she's in labor, having contractions. And uh, the baby is born. The baby's cleaned up, and, and mom gets to hold the baby, and she oozes and ohs over her new child, and she passes the baby to the next woman in the birthing hut. That woman looks, and she oozes and ahs, and then she sort of uh, opens the mouth of the baby, and she spits in the baby's mouth. Like, <clears throat> you know, it's, yeah, isn't that disgusting? And they just pass the child around. <laughs> and they apparently feed the baby. Uh, they, they, they spit in the baby's mouth. That's just odd. It's so disgusting. Some of you got that look, you're like, oh, I can't listen to anything else today. I mean, My daughter is having a baby in January. Imagine in the birthing room, uh, grandpa's there holding first grandchild, and I uh, go ooh and ah, and I open her mouth, and I, and I spit in, in this little granddaughter's mouth. Uh, what would happen? I'd never hold my granddaughter again, right? I'd never have that chance. Why? Because that's not how we do it here. We don't spit in the mouth of a baby. You may do that in Kenya, but you don't do that in Salem or anywhere else in North America, as far as I know. Or or consider this rite of passage... Uh, National Geographic has done this this whole DVD video series on this rite of passage all all around the world. You know, when a a boy becomes a man, there's these certain things that, a process you go through. Some go out and sit alone overnight somewhere. Uh, In in the Amazon, there's this tribe that uh, has been discovered that uh, when a boy is going to become a man, the the men in the village, in the tribe, go out and they collect bullet ants. A bullet ant is a large, giant ant that uh, Westerners have named a bullet ant because apparently its bite or its sting is as painful as being shot with a bullet. So it's a very painful, very large, venomous ant. And the men from the tribe collect these bullet ants and they put them in like a receptacle, kind of like a glove. And uh, And then they take the 12-year-old boy and they tell him to put his hand in it for a half an hour, 25 times. For 12 and a half hours, he gets his hand stung or bitten by these bullet ants. That's odd. In our culture, you get your driver's license. Uh, in the Amazon, you know, you get bit by venomous bugs. I mean, try that. Uh, try that in the U.S. Uh, your, your 12-year-old son is, is going through his rite of passage and you, you put ants in a glove and you, you make him stick his hand in it, and he's stung, and he goes to school with a swollen, bright red hand. What's going to happen? You're going to get a visitor at your house, aren't you? You're, you're going to be in some trouble, because that's not how we do it here. There are customs and traditions around our world that uh, that they apparently they perfectly fit in that culture, but you would never think about doing them here, because that's just not how we do it here. And as we look at the disciple John in his story, really three small stories, what I want to show to you is how how John, who, by the way, he's a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist hands him off to Jesus, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and John the disciple and Andrew the disciple begin following Jesus. They're Christ followers. They're following Jesus. The three words that changed his life, John's life, come and see... Totally just just changed his life. He's walking with Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that what John and the other disciples are doing along the way in the journey of following Christ is that they're they're importing, they're taking with them the customs and the traditions of, of how they used to do life, and they're trying to import them into this new kingdom, but it's not gonna work because that's not how we do it here in the kingdom. You're gonna hear Jesus say this in his own way to his disciples. That's not how we do it here. We don't throw tea on the bride. We, we don't spit in babies' mouths. We don't stick our hands in into receptacles that make us hurt and bite us and bugs bite us and, and we're stung. We don't that's not the way we do it here. We don't we we don't live our life that way. That's not who we are. If you got your Bibles, Luke chapter 9, turn there and and stand with me as I read uh, God's word today. I'll be reading 11 verses, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 56. You're going to see three short little stories, three ways in which one is John's in a group of his disciples, one he's by himself, one he's with his brother, and you're going to hear Jesus say in, in his own way, that's not how we do it here. So follow along as I read. Luke 9, verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, "'Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you all, he is the greatest.'" Second story, Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Third story, as the, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Now, before we dive a little bit deeper into these three little vignettes, let's remind ourselves who John is. We've done that with each of these characters. John is a disciple of Christ. He, he actually grew up, he was born around the Sea of Galilee, we would, we would surmise. Uh, his dad, Zebedee, and his mom, Salome, uh, dad uh, runs a, a business, a successful fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. We, we know in Mark chapter 1 that he's got employees, he's got a, a thriving business, his two sons are working with him as well. Uh, and this, this business is doing uh, we assume is doing very well. Uh, my guess is that Zebedee is at some point in time going to hand over the, this this business to his sons at some point in time. The pulling in of the nets and the sorting fish and the washing nets and cleaning boats and all that is going to be too much and so he 's got these two boys he 's going to hand the business off to and so uh, John, uh, this, this disciple, grows up with his brother james he 's got a couple partners. Peter and Andrew, who also are working, working the lake and fishing. Uh, and this is where, uh, where John grows up. He, he's, uh, he and his brother are given a nickname by Jesus. They're called the Sons of Thunder. Um, it's an interesting, uh, intriguing nickname, isn't it? Uh, the Son of Thunder. You know, like when lightning, when you see lightning happen, and you sort of wonder, okay, when's the big boom coming? Uh, I, I think that's kind of why they got their nickname, uh, the sons of thunder, you never really knew when they were going to go off, how long that fuse was. They maybe stuffed some things in every once in a while, but then it ex- explode, and it's this big boom. We picture Peter as the big burly fisherman. I think John is a guy with calluses on his hands. I think he's a guy who's... He's been working hard. He's got a work ethic, and uh, and he he's not some. Sometimes artists portray John as sort of the, the wispy, wimpy disciple who, um, you know, just sort of timid. And I, no, he's a son of thunder. This guy is passionate. He's blunt. He's going to say what's on his mind. He's got connections in Israel as well. We don't know why or how this is. Maybe it's through business. Uh, perhaps it's through some family relationships. But when Jesus is arrested and taken uh, for this mock trial, remember how Peter uh, denies Christ three times? He's he's by the fire. He he says to the servant, the servant girl, you know, I I never knew him. In in John's gospel, it tells us that, that Peter's out there by the fire by himself because John gets access in to the high priest's courtyard because he knows the high priest, Caiaphas. Somewhere along the way, he's got some connections uh, among the, the, the uppers in society, the, the, the people who are higher on that societal scale, uh, that social scale. So he, he, he's connected. He's, he's the disciple that is entrusted with, with Mary when Jesus is dying on the cross. Jesus says to John, son, here is your mother. Mother, here's your son. Uh, and hands off, entrusts his own mother to John the disciple. He's one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They're there when the synagogue ruler Jairus' daughter is brought back to life. Uh, He's there at Gethsemane, a little bit closer to Jesus. Jesus is struggling and agonizing in prayer. He's sort of got that front row seat. At some point in time, he goes and pastures in Ephesus. And then he's exiled to to Patmos, where uh, historians believe there was a rock quarry there. And so as an old man, he was working a, a rock quarry. Uh, that was his, his punishment for being a Christ follower. And then that emperor dies, and he's released. And, uh, and then he writes the Gospel of John, around 60 A.D. He writes the three epistles that bear his name, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, around 85 A.D. And then while he's on Patmos, uh, he, he has the revelation of Jesus. He, he writes the final book that's in our Bibles, Revelation, uh, while he's exiled on this, on this island. But all along the way, from, from, the be, from the beginning to the end, when he takes his, his last breath, I, I think as we saw in, this, in these three little short stories today, that John, he, he's following Jesus. He's been handed up by John the Baptist. He's following Jesus. And, and along the way, he's, he's bringing his ideas, his thinking about how to do life into this new kingdom. And Jesus is going to say to him uh, several times, that's just not how we do it here. That's not how we do it here, John. Not in this kingdom. Um, Years ago, uh, well, one of our our international partners in Jordan told me this story about a year ago. But several years ago, when they first went to Jordan, this uh, this new culture, uh, they were missing home desperately. It was the holidays. It was Thanksgiving time. And they just craved, uh, the, they craved uh, a Thanksgiving dinner, just all, all the fixings. And uh, you, you don't walk into a Middle Eastern store and, and buy a butterball turkey. Uh, they just aren't, they aren't on the shelf. Uh, and so somehow this family got a turkey and they were so excited. So excited they were going to roast the turkey and, and, you know, get the corn and the, and the mashed potatoes and the gravy, sweet potato. They had all the fixings for a Thanksgiving dinner. They told the kids. The kids were excited. Dad's excited. Mom's excited. And, and they had this one Jordanian family that they're good friends with. And they want them to experience an American Thanksgiving. And so they, they cook up all this stuff and they, they pull the turkey out of the oven and just the, the aroma... The aroma just captures them. You know how you you smell Thanksgiving? Ah, such a good smell. I'm hungry. Uh, Just a good smell. And and they carry the the turkey into the car because they're headed to their friend's house. They bring all the fixings with them. Uh, Rachel puts the the, the turkey on the the counter in the kitchen, takes the fixings, sets the table. And when she walks back into the kitchen, she is devastated at what she sees. There, that... Beautiful, roasted turkey is being smothered in yogurt. In the Middle East, you put yogurt on everything. So this, this, this Jordanian woman thought, wow, just, I get, you must smother it with yogurt. So she's just dumping yogurt on the turkey. And this, this mom, who's been anticipating an American Thanksgiving, has a meltdown. She's just, she can't take it anymore. All she wanted was an American Thanksgiving, and now it's ruined. And she tells the story, she's wiping down the turkey, trying to get the yogurt off. It was ruined, and she was kind of angry. And sometimes that's what happens to us when we're in a different culture. We don't know how to do life there, like this, this Middle East woman didn't know how to do life with a Thanksgiving American turkey, and, and, and this, this woman's like, that's not how we do Thanksgiving. And it's bewildering and it's frustrating. And I'm trying to figure out how to do life here. And I think that's what's happening to John. I don't get this. What, what's this, all this talk about welcoming children? What, those, those people shouldn't be casting out. What Those people, those people need to be punished. He's, he's importing how he used to do life. Into a new kingdom, but there's a new way of doing life in this kingdom, and that's not how we do it here. Quickly, let's look at those three stories. The first one begins with a conversation about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to be in the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to have the corner office? Who's going to have the market share? Whose name is going to be on the sign? Who's, who's going to get the recognition? Who's going to get the award? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I think James and John are, are, are front and center in this. I think this runs in the family. Remember the story about mom, Mrs. Zebedee? She comes to Jesus with her two boys and says, can one of my two sons sit at your right hand in your kingdom? And Jesus says, woman, you, you don't know what you're asking. I think this runs in the genes. Uh, These achievers, these successful business people, this business family who are carving out their market share, and they're doing good. And, And now they're looking for greatness in this new culture, and I think James and John are at the front and center of this conversation. They want to be great. They want that corner office. They want the market share. And Jesus knows their thoughts, brings a child with him, stands amongst his disciples, and says... Whoever welcomes a little child, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. And whoever is the least is the greatest. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Guys, you should never ever be talking about how to be great. You should never, you ne- should never consider being great. No, 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 that's not what he says. He says, if you want to be great, if you want to be great in this culture, in this kingdom, here's how you do it. Whoever welcomes the least of these, welcomes me. See, in that culture, when you had extended hospitality to somebody, when you welcomed someone, took them in your home, had dinner with them, you would take in people who were at the same equal social status with you. Alright? That's how you maintained honor. You didn't, you didn't hang out with people who were considered lower caste. If there were some sort of ladder of esteem in a community... Uh, If you were on the middle rung, you you invited, you spent time with people at the middle rung or higher. Because if if you extended hospitality, you welcomed someone who is higher on that ladder of esteem, that brought you honor. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Whoever welcomes someone below you on the ladder welcomes me and the one who sent me. Do you want to be great? You invite, you extend hospitality. You reach out to those who are of lower social, lower perceived social status than you. And that's how you become great. We don't pursue greatness by pursuing the corner office, by looking for our name in lights. We pursue greatness in this kingdom by becoming small. That word least, whoever is the least that's the Greek word "micros." where literally it translates short. Remember Matthew? Whoever welcomes the short person, welcomes me. Now, right after that little vignette, that little story, John, John goes, uh, Master, um, uh, we were out there and I, I saw somebody who was casting out demons in your name and, and they don't walk with us. They haven't sat under your teaching, and they were out there casting out demons in your name. And I stopped them. I told them to stop. They don't have the right. They don't have the right to cast out demons in your name. They're not part of the club. Uh, this is an exclusive gathering, and they're not with us. And this is copyright infringement. That they shouldn't be doing these things. And so I put a stop to it, and I and I told them to stop doing it. And Jesus says, John, that that's not how we do it here. We we don't throw tea on the bride, spit in a baby's mouth put our hand in gloves filled with bullet ants. Whoever is not against us is for us. There's no room for a competitive us-against-them mentality in the kingdom. You don't stop somebody else who's who's delivering another person, bringing healing to another person. It's a bit ironic in a couple of fashions, because that's what the Pharisees did, right? It's also ironic because earlier in chapter 9, The inner three, Peter, James, and John, are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. The rest of the disciples are at the bottom of the mountain. What can't they do? They can't deliver a boy who's demonized. And then Jesus comes down. He gives his little talk about why that didn't happen. And there's faith and there's prayer and fasting involved. And and then a little bit later, John is trying to shut down Another person who's having success when his buddies didn't have success. Because you can't do that. that that's, that's what we do. You can't do what we do. We own the market on that. And Jesus says, No, John, that's not how we do it here. There's, that's, we, we don't have a competitive spirit. We rejoice when First Baptist grows. We're thrilled when the Nazarene church builds a new building and then they grow. We're excited when the Presbyterian church sees people coming to Christ. We're not it's not us against them. It's this is family. That's how we do it here. We we reach out to the small. We get rid of the competitive spirit and then James and John they're headed to Jerusalem. This is really astounding if you think about it. Walking with Jesus, soon Jesus is going to the cross, weeks or months. And they're on their way. These guys still don't get it. Frankly, this encourages my own heart. Because sometimes we're a little slow in getting it, aren't we? They're going to Jerusalem. And they're sending messengers out ahead. Can you see if there's a village who will take in Jesus before he goes to Jerusalem? Because this is going to be a significant trip. There's a village that won't receive. They won't welcome Jesus. Because he's headed to Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim. There's a, a theological issue going on there I don't have time to get into. But the holy place for a Samaritan was Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And so they reject uh, having Jesus stay with them. So what did, what did the sons of thunder do? Jesus, we got a solution here. Here's the solution. Do you, do you want us to, to, to go and call fire down from heaven on these people, these jerks? that rejected you? Do you want us to spiritually napalm the village and just and just light them up because they have, uh, they've rejected you? We can do it, Jesus. I, I, we've done all kinds of things and we can come to your defense. And what does Jesus say? That's not how we do it here. He, he rebukes James and John. Uh, he, he's going to the cross compelled by love for people and mercy. He's not going to Torch a village on the way, and I, I think these these guys are like, how do we do life? I I don't know if I get this. You know, if you are living in a in a, a different culture, um, you know, you kind of go through that romantic period of, oh, it's so wonderful to be living in this village, or it's so nice to be living in this city, and oh, look at all these things. And before long, the the romantic part sort of goes away, and you start to get frustrated. And sometimes you get angry. Um, And there's even reverse culture shock. Um, In in Hong Kong, when I was a kid, the way you survived in Hong Kong was being very aggressive. If you're waiting for a bus in a city of 7 million people, and a bus pulls up and it's got 100 seats on it, and there's 250 people in line, it's not the first 100 or so that get on the bus. It's all-out war. And if you don't fight your way on the bus, you're going to have some 75-year-old grandmother take you down on the side of the curb. And she will, because that's how you do it there. That, it's changed over the years, but even now, like, there's a subway system that moves 300,000 people an hour. And when that, when that subway pulls up and the doors are there, you know there are people coming off. You don't step aside. You stand right in the middle. and Who cares if they get off the, the, the subway? You've you got to get on. It's a war. That's just how you survive. And you got to be okay with knocking old women and old men down. You know, it's like, sorry. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's how you survive. We have our own ways of doing things here in Oregon. I mean, think about it. When it rains, you don't use an umbrella. If you see someone holding an umbrella, you're going, they must have come here from California or something. <laughs> We don't carry umbrellas. Come on. That's not how we do it here. <laughs> we have our ways of doing it. Here's what I think is happening here. I think we've got John who begins a journey with Jesus. He's a Christ follower just like you and me. He's trying to understand this new life, but what he's done is he's bringing the old life with him and thinking, well, that's how I'll do life in this new kingdom. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's been all along trying to teach his disciples about how to do life in the kingdom. Like in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you. Because that's how we do it here. Sure you want to live in this kingdom? Or how about a little bit longer, a little bit later in in chapter 5? You have heard it, That it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Because that's how we do it here. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Because that's how we do it here. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Because that's how we do it here. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom culture from the very beginning. Sometimes it takes us a while to understand that we just can't download or import the way we used to do life into this new kingdom. There's a new way. There's a new journey with Christ. And somewhere along this path, somewhere along the road, it clicks for him. It clicks for John. He's been fighting and struggling. He's been trying to figure it out and wondering, what's he mean by that? What do you mean the greatest is the, the least? What do, you, what do you mean I should stop someone from infringing on what I'm supposed to be doing? What do you mean I can't punish people who... Who disagree with me and then it clicks from I don't know where it happened somewhere along the way after all this teaching by Jesus maybe it's in the upper room the, the upper room discourse in, in, in John where, where Jesus gives his last command to his disciples this is my command love one another Somewhere along the journey for John, he becomes obsessed with the concept of love. He understands that if he's going to live and thrive in this kingdom, then he is going to have to do it by loving God and loving people and he embraces it. John chapter 1 through John chapter 12, the word love shows up six times. Between John chapter 13 and John chapter 17, the word love is used 31 times. He's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not because he's teacher's pet or because he's the favorite. I think it's because he understood. He finally received the fact that he was loved. And it revolutionized the way he did life. When he wrote his three epistles... Listen to some of these verses that he writes in 1 John chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Verse 10, This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. He becomes obsessed with loving love people and loving God because that's how we do it here saint jerome writes about the later years of john's life tells the story of how john as an aged man was carried around on a pallet to the church and along the way people would stop and talk to him and he would say over and over again little children love one another Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. People actually thought he was going senile. He was, he was losing it. Because that's all he would say. In fact, Jerome writes, why do, you, why do you keep saying, Little children, love one another? And John's response would be, God is love. And if you've done that, you've done enough. As he's dying, he's brought into church on a cot. He sits up on the cot, ready to preach. And maybe he's going to tell some story that we haven't read about in his gospel. Maybe he's going to give us a new angle on who Jesus is. Maybe it's his last shot. He's going to give his last charge on on how to do, do life. And what's John say? Little children, love one another. And later that week, he dies. Passes into glory. Well, what's it mean to love one another? John defines it as this: love is this that Christ laid down His life for you. Not, not yes, He laid down His physical life, but that word "life" is the, the it's a Greek word suke, which means your thinking life, which refers to self. You lay down self for others. What would that look like for you? What would that look like in your marriage? What would that look like in the way that you talk to your wife, talk to your husband, treat your children? Maybe in the workplace, there's that annoying person, and you would uh, you'd like to call fire down from heaven? Not on them. Maybe on their computer. Just fry their computer. <laughs> what would it look like in your neighborhood? You know, that, that neighbor who, whose dog is always barking, whose music is loud, whose kids run around the house late at night and make noise. Sorry about that. That's our house. <laughs> What would it look like to love your neighbor? It's laying down self. Now you may lay down your life and that'd be a beautiful expression of love, but it's laying down your thinking for the sake of someone else. Your rights isn't about competing with them. It isn't about being greater than them. It isn't about punishing them. It's about loving them. If John were here, we would say, John, what's the picture you'd have of Jesus for us? I think John would say, he's the Jesus, he's the Jesus who taught me how to do life in the kingdom. He's the Jesus who taught me how to love. He's the Jesus that would say to you, little children, love one another. You've been listening to Steve Fowler, lead pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at Fifth and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.